something to consider before I start on these three long chapters, which really aren't too long. Anything goes wrong or any issues from last week or this week, we will blame it on the guy who is not here, and that is Pastor John. I was noting to Pastor Tim a little earlier, the guy goes away on vacation and leaves us almost with a quarter of the book of Acts as he gives us six chapters to cover while he's gone. Who does something like that, right? Obviously he does. So there, there will be some laughing today. I'm going to try to keep it light like he does. going to be a lot of reading today. As I said, it's three chapters. Um, but let's get into it. So my introduction is actually going to come from the book of Luke, chapter 21, verses 10 through 15. There it says, then he, Jesus, said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places famines and pestilence. And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. And you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. Last week, Tim brought us through this initial odyssey that Paul finds himself in. And this odyssey is going to eventually take him to a place called Rome. But before he gets there, the very thing that Jesus warned about, he has to go through. In our previous chapters, we saw him before the Sanhedrin, and now the Sanhedrin has brought him before the governor, this governor Felix, and that's where we're going to take up in chapter 24, verse 1. It says, And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul, and when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation, in every way and everywhere we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly, for we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. So as we initially look, we should have a reminder. And if you have your bulletin, you'll notice there's a main point, and then the page is blank. That wasn't meant to be that way. Again, remember initial point that I brought up, anything wrong today gets blamed on who? See, you guys are already tracking. You're already tracking, and that's good to see that you're awake on this beautiful Sunday morning. So our first point is going to be the accusations. And we should see a parallel in these accusations, as Cheryl read earlier. Some of the things that we're going to see as, as Paul is persecuted here mimics the very things that Jesus himself went through as he was before Pilate. And we've brought this up in the past. As Christians, 
we can expect to share in the suffering of Christ. And that's what Paul himself is doing as he before was, as I said earlier, before the Sanhedrin. And now he goes before Felix. But one thing I want you to notice is the great extent that the Jews are going through to make sure that Paul gets convicted. At this point, they hire somebody. So since they had that five-day span to go from Jerusalem to Caesarea, they hire a lawyer or an orator or a rhetorician. Say that word three times very fast. And the purpose of this rhetorician is to bring their case before the governor in order that they might have Paul convicted. So let's see the accusations that Tertullus brings up before Felix. And before we do that, let's notice also a little brown nosing that Tertullus does as he talks to Felix. So if you're familiar with Josephus, Josephus is going to tell us that the opposite is true when it comes to Felix. They were not enjoying great reforms under Felix as Felix was an evil governor. And we don't have time to go in great detail of all that he did. But again, just note that they're going to butter Felix up again to try to get this conviction to go through. And here are their charges. They accuse him saying, we found this man misleading. Our name. I'm sorry, let me go back. Uh, their charges are that Paul is a plague. He's a nuisance. He's one who stirs up riots among all the Jews of the world, a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes, and the most serious charge, rather, in the eyes of the Jews, he attempted to profane the temple. So as we look at each one of these charges, they don't want to show Paul as an insurrectionist just like they did Jesus. Because for the Romans, as the Romans ruled each one of these provinces or districts, what they want is peace. Taking you back a little bit, for those who know me well, I love history. Actually, my uh, bachelor's degree is in history. One of the series that I listened to long ago, so I will listen to podcasts of history series. And one of these podcasts that I listened to was called King of Kings. Should have went over Jesus, but unfortunately it did not. I was talking about the kings of Persia. And in discussing these kings of Persia, what they talked about, starting with Cyprus, going all the way through Artaxerxes, was the philosophy that the Persians used after they dominated an area. And it seems like the Romans learned from the same thing. So instead of dominating an area and making you take on our culture, we're going to let you keep your culture. The mindset being the more that we let you keep on your culture, the less likely you're going to still be comfortable and the less likely that you're going to revolt. We want peace. We already conquered you. We don't want to have to keep sending troops in and everything else. Let's make this easy. So now the Jews are going to use that to their advantage, knowing that. You Romans want peace. This individual right here is not going to bring peace. He's going to be the individual who is in the province stirring up the people and causing riots and now causing trouble for you, when in fact the opposite is true. If we look back in chapter 21, it was the Jews from Asia who had stirred up the riot back in Ephesus, and it was also the Jews in Asia, or from Asia rather, that had stirred up the disruption in the temple as well. So we have already a little line to try to complete our plan of getting Paul convicted. And again, this should bring us back to Jesus. 
We must get rid of Jesus, not Barabbas, the one who actually stirred up the trouble and was an insurrectionist. No, Pilate, you must get rid of this individual here, this Jesus. So Paul, again, is showing us a parallel here between Paul and Jesus. Moving forward as we go, because we're going to have to go kind of rapidly. I said I'm covering a lot. As we look at now verses 10 through 22, we're going to see Paul's defense and his message, and that's going to be the second point. It says, and when the governor had nodded for him to speak, Paul replied, knowing that for many years that you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it has not been more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem and... and Pay attention here. They did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God which these men themselves accept that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation, should they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing that I cried out while I was standing amongst them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. So as we look at verses 10 through 22, we can see that the main point here is that the accuser's accusations lack two important things. They lack proof and they lacked witnesses. So how are they going to try to get this conviction? Because we've seen earlier they were successful in doing that when it came to Jesus. And here's where we have to be careful. When we start to look at individuals like Felix and Festus and later on Agrippa as we move to chapter 26, we see some of the things that we see today in our world. People will make compromises when it comes to politics or when it comes to political expediency. So let's see how the story goes. So Paul states that they have no proof whatsoever that that he did these things. He states that as he was in Jerusalem, his accusers did not find him disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. So he was there for 12 days and not once did they see him doing any of the things that they are accusing him of. And again, as I noted earlier, Acts 21 tells us that it, in fact, was the Jews from Asia who stirred up the crowd. Lack of witnesses. This is verses 18b through 20. The Jews from Asia who seized Paul in the first place should have been present to make their accusations and be cross-examined. Paul then challenges the crowd that if any among them are witnesses to these charges, then they should come forward now. And not one person comes forward. Paul also gives us an alibi in verses 11 and 17. Paul was in Jerusalem to worship, so he is at the scene of the crime. 
I feel like I'm at work for some reason right now. <clears throat> but his purpose for being in Jerusalem was to worship and to provide alms to his nation and to present offerings. So he's showing in his very purpose for being here that it's not to cause dissension. He's not there to cause trouble. He's there to bless as he's providing alms for the poor and offering and bringing offerings rather to his God. While he was doing these things, he was found purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. So that purification part is important as well because one of the things that they accused him of was profaning the temple. So again, why would I go through the trouble of profaning the temple if I've already been purified? Or why go through the trouble of being purified if my intent was to profane the temple? best part of this is verses 14 through 16, where Paul now gives his confession. He does confess to one of the charges that was brought before Felix by Tertullus. And here's what Paul says. In response to being called a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes, Paul confesses that according to the way, he worships the God of their fathers and believes everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets. And this is a theme that we will see again in chapter 26 when Paul speaks before Agrippa. Paul further explains that he has a hope in God that his accusers also hold to and that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. Paul in verse 21 restates verbatim the words of Acts 23.6. It is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. So if you remember in that scene, we had the Sanhedrin coming at him, and Paul knows his crowd very well. And he knows that crowd is composed of who? Who would be a part of that Sanhedrin? We have the Essenes, the Pharisees who believe in a resurrection, and the Sadducees who are those who do not. And if we're familiar with this chief priest, Ananias, he unfortunately was a member of the Sadducees, which is going to come up as something important as we move forward. In this statement, as Paul brings up that he's on trial for his belief in the resurrection of the dead, Paul is showing that the issue at hand is a theological issue, not a criminal issue. And we'll see that Felix himself is familiar with this religion called the way. And he's also familiar with different sex of the religion being that he is a governor within the province. So in Felix's mind as he looks at this, it's just another dispute among the Jews about their religion. I know the Pharisees hold to one thing, the Sadducees hold to something else. This is just another faction of this religion that has now been sparked upon me. A special note in Paul's confession is verse 16. He says, so I always try to have a clear conscience both toward God and man. I, Howard Marshall, notes when a person believes that there will be a future judgment, it is sound sense for him to endeavor to maintain a clear conscience as regards his duty to God, both directly and also indirectly in his dealings with other people. Paul's wording reflects the common idea of human duty, duty rather, towards God and man, and ties in with Jesus' summary of the law in terms of love of God and one's neighbor. It also echoes his earlier claim 
in chapter 23, verse 1, to have a good conscience, i.e., one that does not condemn him, not because it is insensitive, but because it can detect no faults. Now, this concept of no faults does not mean that Paul is sinless. As Paul will later admit of how he was one that persecuted the way prior. What it does mean that he as an individual maintains a posture of repentance and forgiveness before God and man. So one thing that I ask us as a church is that something that we do. Do we have a posture of repentance and forgiveness as we deal with our relationship vertically and horizontally? As we go before God, are we a repentant people? Do we meditate on our individual days, thinking what we did throughout the day where we might have sinned against the holy God in thought, word, and deed? Do we think about our relationships vertically as we deal with different people on a day-in and day-out basis and how we might have sinned against them? Because we're going to see this having a clear conscience before God is something that's very important to Paul, especially if we're going to bear witness. How can I bear witness to a people that I have offended and not made my relationship right before them? And this is something that we have to think about, church, especially with everything going on in our world today. Um, we are living in an age where time travels like that. So the very things that in this day and time took maybe months for people to find out, because we're going to see as Paul goes to Rome, once he gets there, people have no idea who he is or what is going on as he gets up there. So everything that's taken place in Jerusalem that everyone has been able to take notice of, in Rome they have no idea of what's going on. So we've moved from that time to a time where I'm not going to say where some of you are around and everything was snail mail and it took possibly weeks because all of you are much too young for that. So we went from a time where there was snail mail, though, and it took weeks for you to discover what's going on to now. We pretty much have the news at our fingertips, which is good in a way. It's good to know what's going on in the world, but it's also bad in a way because sometimes we like to give our opinion of what's going on on these things, especially on the platform that we're getting this information from. Now, I don't know why I punish myself like this, but I typically do. Whenever I read these articles or these social media outlets, I love to look at the comments. Sometimes it cracks me up. Sometimes I say to myself, what's this person thinking, whatever the case may be. But as we comment there, I want you to notice that typically our name is there, and then whatever fleeting thought that we have. And maybe later you can go and delete it, but unfortunately someone has seen that. And now that thought is associated with you. And sometimes that thought might be against somebody in this very room. And it could be offensive. Or it could be against your neighbor who you might potentially meet and now have the opportunity to be offensive. So we need to be mindful of our conduct. That's the whole concept of this. That we can have a clear conscience before the people that we go in front of. And while I'm on a tangent of that, one thing that always cracks me up 
How many blog authors do we have in here or politicians? Okay, none. So here's the thing that trips me out when I look at the comment section. When somebody has an opinion, so we'll say Joe Biden put something on his site. Now someone in here or somewhere feels the need to promote Joe Biden or defend Joe Biden as if they wrote the policy and know everything about it. I, I just don't understand that. So now you're interjecting your opinion, possibly offending your brother or sinning against your brother, and now we have strife for no reason, and that clear conscience that we just talked about is no longer there because you felt the need to defend Joe Biden, Donald Trump, or whoever else you felt the need to offend in newsflash. None of those people know who you are. <laughs> so please don't take the pains to defend them. But I digress. Main point to think of there is having a clear conscience before both God and man. Now, in reference to that point, one thing I also want to note is this Paul's way of providing further evidence that he is not a nuisance. Would a man who always seeks to have a clear conscience before God and man be seeking to be a public nuisance? And my answer would hopefully be no. My answer would be no. Some other interesting thing to note, <clears throat> that they call him a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Now you almost wonder, as they bring that up, if that's a dig in some way, shape, or form. Now, why would I say that? Well, we always remember that there's nothing good that comes out of Nazareth. So again, Paul, seeing each one of these things that Tertullus brings up, now has to be even a better orator or rhetorician as he brings up his defense. And now, as we look at verses 23 through 27, we see Felix's response. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off. So essentially he adjourns this whole meeting. And he says, when Lysias, the tribune, comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. Now after some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control in the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you again. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul, so he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus in desiring to do the Jews a favor Felix left Paul in prison. So I told you, politics. Politics is going to play a major role in this because we're going to see eventually that Paul is someone who should be released, and that's from the mouth of Agrippa and Festus. And you're going to have to excuse me as I keep saying Festus because you guys do know what came out of Festus, right? That's everybody's, well, not everybody's favorite Roman politician, but Festivus for the rest of us came from Festus. If you don't know the reference, you might have to watch a couple Seinfeld episodes. I do apologize. <laughs> so as we look at my man Felix here, Felix has two things on his mind. One is getting paid, which just like it is now, taking any types of bribes is illegal. It was illegal back then as well. And in Felix's thought, 
scholars hold to maybe two things that Felix is thinking. Number one, this is a guy who has been able to collect money for his nation. Can he do the same for me? Or, you know, as his needs are being attended to, he's seeing how his friends are taking care of him and says, hey, maybe they can throw me a little something as well. But note also that Felix is talking out of both ends of his mouth and trying to get something out of both sides as he's also trying to seek the favor of the Jews. And that is why he keeps Paul in prison. But Paul uses the time wisely. And what does he do? He brings forth the gospel to Felix every time that he goes before him. So every opportunity that Paul has to go before Felix, he's not defending his rights as a Roman. He's bringing him the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's something also that is important for us to remember. I'm going back to our whole internet thing where we like to interject our opinions just as guilty as anybody else. But as we look at our posts, do they reflect our kingdom or do they reflect Jesus's kingdom as we post there on the internet? Are we witnesses of the Lord Jesus Christ? Do we take the most out of every opportunity to proclaim ourselves or to proclaim him. As we see Paul before the government, he's taking every opportunity to lift up the name of Jesus. So two years elapses, and now we're in chapter 25 where we're going to deal with Festivus for the rest of us. And from what Josephus says, I believe Festus was pretty new to the game, and the Jews wanted to take advantage of that. And opening up in verse 1, it says, Now three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking as a favor, there's that language again, against Paul that he summoned him to Jerusalem, because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. And I'm just going to stop right there really quickly. It amazes me and again, just as guilty as anybody else, when we become the very things that we complain about or make an accusation about. Because I have to assume, if I'm going to ambush somebody that's being escorted by the Roman government, what am I going to have to do? I'm going to have to attack Rome. The very thing that they just accused Paul of, or two years earlier at least, accused Paul of. So they're ready to take on Rome to make this mission happen. Now, the thing that gets me is, this is two years later. Two years. I can barely remember what I did yesterday. And two years later, they still have Paul at the forefront of their mind. So much so that as Festus comes down, that's the first thing that they're bringing up to him. Not the great reforms that Felix did for them. Hey, Felix did this for us. Can you make sure we keep this? No, the first thing that they're going to bring up is Paul, which kind of makes you wonder what was going on as Paul was in that jail for two years. Because remember I said that ringleader part is especially important, but this is why I came up with the name of the message that I came up with, right? Same game, different names, same message. Same message is the gospel, and it will be the same message from then 
all the way through eternity. The same game is to try to get rid of this message the best way that they feel possible. But one question that I have is, what is the definition of insanity? Doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. So you got rid of the main leader, Jesus, with the hopes that this message would dissolve. It did not. In Acts 5 or 6, you start persecuting the church. You kill Stephen. You arrest Peter and the other disciples. And then you don't follow Gamaliel's advice. He tells you of previous ringleaders and says, hey, so-and-so from Egypt came up in the past. He died and his people did what? They scattered. They dispersed. Another individual came up. His ringleader was arrested or died. People dispersed. Then he tells them, be careful about what you're fighting against. Because if it's a thing from man, it'll just simply go away. But if it's from God, you might be fighting against God himself. Unfortunately, they didn't take that advice. They got fixated on the ringleader advice, I think, and said to themselves, let's rid ourselves of this individual. And hopefully, this message of the cross and the resurrection will go away. Obviously, within that two-year period, it did not go away. I have a Pastor John reference. I think he will love this. You know he loves his mafia movies. It kind of reminds me of, so you, you locked up the ringleader. You have the mafia boss who's in jail and out on the street. All his bidding is still being done because from the jail, he's giving the details of everything that needs to be done. As Paul is being visited, I can just imagine whatever needs to be done for the spread of the gospel, he is passing on to those individuals who are meeting him in jail. We know this because that's how his letters, for the most part, were passed on. So the gospel continues to spread. And that is probably why this is still at the forefront of the Jewish leader's mind. So jail is not good enough We need to kill him. That is their plan. And they're hoping that although Festus is a little older, you're going to see he's only governor for two years, that since he's new at the game, they can convince him, hey, why don't you send him to Jerusalem so we can set up this ambush and take care of this once and for all. But Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So said he, let the men of authority among you go down with me, and if there is anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. And after he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea, and the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. So here they go again with many and serious charges charges against Paul, which again, same game. But here's the thing, if it didn't work two years ago, how much harder now would it be to prove these very things that you claim now? Because here's the thing, two years ago, you had no witnesses. So now how are you going to acquire these witnesses who you claim witnessed this event two years ago 
as well. Continuing in verse 8, Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. Here comes this famous verbiage again. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? Paul in his mind knew, if I go to Jerusalem, I have no chance at all. It is going to be a kangaroo court, and then my fate is going to be what it's going to be. So I have a better chance of standing before Rome than I do before the Jews. So what does he do? He appeals to Caesar. I am going to appeal to Caesar. And Festus's response is, to Caesar you have replied, or responded, and to Caesar you shall go. Now, on the outside, this does not look good. But if we remember, God's purpose for Paul was that Paul would go to Rome. So Paul is going to end up in Rome. And here's where the Christian life gets hard. Because for me, and I know you are the same as me, some of you might be older and might deny some of this, but when I used to teach D.A.R.E. class in the schools back in the day, I used to tell my kids, no one wakes up in the morning and says, I feel like being arrested today. Nobody does. I don't care how bad the criminal is. They don't say, hey, I want to get arrested today. You as a Christian, do not say, you know what, bucket list item for me or something I have on the to-do list today is I want to be persecuted. Anybody have that on their, their to-do list this week? No, nobody had persecution on there. Was anybody able to, to check that off? So for us, most of us would say, God, wouldn't it have been easier for me to just get on a ship and go to Rome? I could have been there two years ago. <laughs> I could have been there already. The very mission that you've called me to do, I could be in the act of doing. But I've spent these last two years here in this jail. But we're going to come to find out that that was for a purpose. But before we do that, let's see Paul before Agrippa. Now when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And as they stayed there for many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, there's a man left prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. Classic Sixth Amendment, that's where we get that from. So when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils, I supposed. We're going to see Festus, is going to see the same thing Felix did. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. We're going to find out there's only one problem. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself tomorrow, said he. You will hear him. So that's something that was read earlier about the parallel between Jesus before Herod and now Paul before Herod, both Herods, Herod Antipas in Jesus' time versus now Herod Agrippa in this time, 
or intrigued by these men. And now it's a spectacle. And we're going to see how much of a spectacle this becomes as we continue in verse 23. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, great pomp and circumstance. And they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. And here's the problem that I brought up earlier. But I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we examine him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. Can you imagine the field day, a CNN or an MSNBC or whatever your news choice is, if the police arrested somebody with no charges whatsoever? This court case is probably in about 270 days. We still haven't figured out what we're going to charge him with. You're looking at me like I'm crazy. That's how I'd be looking too. Yes. That, that would not fly here in America. Taking you back, which I can do, and I'm sure Mike can resonate with this. When I first got on my job in 2001, you'd have the old timers on. And anytime someone was causing trouble in the street, they would lock them up. And the charge would be mopery and dopery. You guys are like, what in the world is Mopri and Dopri? That's just pretty much a coverall. We're going to find a way to get you off the street so you don't cause any trouble tonight. So it's kind of the same thing here. Paul is being charged with essentially Mopri and Dopri. And as they're going to move him forward to Caesar, they have nothing to write. So now Paul is going to be examined before the Jewish expert, Agrippa. And let's see as he goes before Agrippa. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against all the accusation of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversy of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. So Paul knows he's going before somebody who is going to be very familiar with the things that he is about to talk about. So the first thing that Paul is going to bring about is his past. My manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time if they are willing to testify that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I am accused by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? So we could sit here and say that God can do all things, that there's nothing impossible for God. Why would it be strange that this very God would be able to raise the dead? Or even before a Pharisee, Hey, Pharisee, you claim to believe in something called the resurrection. I'm proclaiming someone to you 
that was resurrected. And yet you don't believe me. So why is it so strange that I talk about what God is able to do? You refuse to believe. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. So Paul knows his accusers very, very well. Why? Because he used to be one of them. The very thing that his accusers are doing is trying to destroy or eradicate this sect called the way Paul himself used to do. Which kind of makes you wonder if that's really what the Sanhedrin's beef really is. Here's a guy that used to be among us, and now he's a traitor. Here's a guy who grew up at the feet of Gamaliel. And now he no longer walks among us. And instead he is proclaiming the very thing that we vehemently hate. So since we vehemently hate that message, we vehemently hate him. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. And at midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you delivering you from your own people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So Paul is retelling his story of conversion and the very purpose as to why he was chosen by God. Paul retells that story before Agrippa and all these high officials. So therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. So I am no longer of this sect called the Pharisees because I'm being obedient to God. God is the one who pulled me out from that group that I might go forth and proclaim the gospel. But declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God performing deeds and keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God. So I stand here testifying both the small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. So again, it's now the third time that Paul is preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, 
You are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. And as I think of Festus's response, think of the words of Paul, where he talks about the gospel being a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Festus hears this story and thinks Paul is out of his mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festivus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. So since the time of Jesus on, none of this has been done in a corner. And as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, there's witness upon witness to these very things. Now, here's something I always say, which boggles my mind. If you don't believe in something, why do you vehemently argue against it? Because to me, it's just a waste of time. I don't know if that makes sense to you if you're tracking on what I'm saying. But, you know, I typically see people vehemently arguing against Jesus. I don't see people vehemently arguing against the Easter Bunny. Anybody think the Easter Bunny exists in here? <laughs> there, there's no, is there any kids in here? I'm sorry. No. Yet none of us are vehemently arguing typically over something that we know is untrue and has no evidence. We don't. We understand it is a waste of time. It's a waste of time. So knowing that none of this has escaped the notice of any of these folks in the region, Paul is going to use this now as he brings forth the message of the gospel to Agrippa. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? Anytime you want to be out of trouble. I always laughingly say this at work to our internal affairs guy. If you ask me a question, I'm going to answer it with a question. Because in essence, I'm not really answering the question, right? Him and I are good friends, and I don't have any internal affairs, so don't, don't worry. <laughs> I'm not in trouble at work. But do you get the point? Agrippa doesn't want to answer the question. Why? Because if he admits to believing, Festus and that whole crowd thinks Paul is crazy. Logically, they're going to think he is crazy. But at the same time, he's got to go back to the Jews. So he can't sit here and deny the fact that he holds to the prophets because now when he sees the Jewish people, they're going to have a bone to pick with him as well. So Paul puts him in a quagmire, puts him in this situation where Agrippa doesn't want to answer either way. And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Paul is still on the mission of proclaiming the gospel and bringing the light to the very people that he is in front of. So then the king rose and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, 
This man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. So that was a lot to ingest. And of course, we had to go through it quickly just because we're short on time. So I'm only going to give you four points as we look at what all this means because I know the brain can only handle but so much. So point one to consider. Despite persecution and suffering, God's purposes and plans will still be fulfilled. I'm going to say that again. Despite persecution and suffering, God's purposes and plans will still be fulfilled. In fact, God uses persecution and suffering to expand his kingdom. We can see that as we look and explore through the book of Acts, and we can even see that today as we look at nations like China or continents like Africa where the gospel is spreading immensely. And obviously, those are areas where churches are under heavy persecution. So contrary to what I said before, you want to see the church grow? Pray for persecution. Kind of weird to say, right? That's when the church grows. Because let's be honest. One thing I didn't bring up about that Persian Empire before, kind of why nations fall is we get fat, dumb, and happy. And when we do that, we kind of go away from the mission that we're called to do. And then we just go on with our very lives. Kind of something like the American church today, if I can honestly say it. We're kind of more focused probably on American Christian culture than proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is something that we have to be very, very careful of. God's purpose for Paul is for him to be a servant and a witness to the things that he has seen and to those things that he will see, delivering him from his own people and the Gentiles, to whom Jesus is sending him to open their eyes so that they can turn from the power of Satan to God that they might receive the forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified. Paul in his persecution, now just, just think about this. He preached to the Jews, to Felix and Drusilla, Festus, Agrippa and Bernice, and he will eventually preach to the people of Rome. So in all that persecution and all the questioning on why we ask, why wouldn't you let this brother just get on the ship and go to Rome if that was your initial intent? This is why, because Paul had a great opportunity to bring the gospel before all of these individuals. In church, that's our mission. Our mission is to be servants and witnesses of what Jesus has done and continues to do, bringing the gospel to all people so that their eyes would be open. And they can turn from the power of Satan to God, receiving the forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified. That is the church's mission. The church is to preach the gospel. Not politics, not of all the different things that might be false doctrine, because we, we can get very fixated on all these other things that go on with the church. I had a pastor, though, one time say is, if you want to combat yourself against false doctrine, you know what the best thing to do is? Preach truth. Don't worry about the false doctrine and be preaching that. Preach the gospel. Preach the truth so that your people will know what the truth is. 
Because all we're doing nowadays is filling ourselves with myths and foolish controversies, which 20 years from now, we're not going to talk about. There'll be another new thing for us to talk about. We must stick to the same message, which is the gospel. So no matter what the game, no matter what the players, the message should always stay the same. Point two, despite persecution and suffering, we the church must remain faithful to our calling. And you see that kind of falls in to point one. We are called to preach the gospel whether in season or out of season. And there are many things in this world that can distract us from that mission. But we can't be distracted, church. We must proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. This one is huge because we saw it in each one of Paul's speeches. But the resurrection is everything. Everything. Because without it, we have no hope. And we've brought this up, I think, in the last four weeks, three times in the pulpit. If there is no resurrection, we might as well eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow we die. There's no resurrection. We have nothing else to look forward to. So Paul is continually reminding us about the immensity of the resurrection of Jesus because that is our hope. And lastly, as the people of God, we are always to strive to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. We should be a people who exercise repentance and forgiveness always. We have been forgiven much, Therefore, we should be a model of forgiveness. And we should be a people who, when we fall, when we sin, come openly in repentance. And it kind of reminds me, and I'm not going to fully read these verses, but of 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 4, and 1 Thessalonians 4, 9 through 12, as we seek to live a life that has a clear conscience before God and man, we should seek to live peaceful and quiet lives. This way, no one can have an accusation before us. And that's what's going to open up the door for us to proclaim the message of the cross.